Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Barent Neustraten. Believing the unbelievable, you know it's hard sometimes to believe things, isn't it? Um, you know, I just before we have a prayer, I'll just on a lighter note, I'll give you a story. Don't know whether it's true, but I'll just give you the story. Um, there's this rich man, and he always has money on him. And unfortunately, he's been to the doctor, and it's not going to last terribly long. It's only weeks to go. And in the process of uh, preparing for the funeral, he talks to his wife of a number of years, and he says... I've made everything out to you, but there is a condition. And the condition is that you make sure I have $50,000 in the casket. Right there. I need always access to money, and I want $50,000 in the casket. Don't bury me without it. And he makes a promise. And so the, the funeral comes, it happened, he's passed on. And uh, just before the service is finished, the wife gets up and she's got a little, little wallet, just a small little wallet, and she sneaks that into the casket before they close, after the viewing, before they close the casket. And the presiding pastor saw that, and afterwards he said to her, now, can you tell me what you put that wallet in the casket for? And then she told him the story how he, she's given the undertaking that she makes sure that he has access to $50,000. He said, the pastor said, but if he's dead, he wouldn't know. She said, yes, pastor, but I'm a Christian, I promised. He said, oh, all right. How do you get $50,000 in a little wallet like that? He said, oh, that's easy. I wrote him a check. <laughs> it's not always what it seems, isn't it? That's for certain. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, as we bow our heads before you and as we look at your, your word, Lord, please give me the wisdom what to say and what not to say. Uh, I am but dust, and I am relying on your spirit to guide me, to, and, and for the people here to hear me, and hear the word, and hear you through the word. Bless this time together, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Believe the unbelievable, uh, and receive the impossible. There was a man by the name of Jesse Deplantis. He was a uh, philosopher, theologian, preacher. Believe the unbelievable and receive the impossible. You have no choice but to believe the unbelievable. It wouldn't matter what you believe. You must believe the unbelievable. Even if God to you does not exist and the Bible is but foolishness, you still have to believe the unbelievable. In fact, it gets harder when you take God out of the picture. It truly does. Unbelief buries faith. There's no question about it. It turns it upside down. It is, it is so, so damaging. But we as Christians, we must be believing the God in the one we believe in. I think that is very important. Believing the God 
you believe in is our walk of life. Why unbelief? Why is there so much unbelief? Well, firstly, to begin with, there's the incarnation. Can you imagine? The very concept of incarnation is difficult, but, but, but for God to become man, that is absolutely incredible. We don't even know how big God is. And then to believe that he becomes man, that is quite extraordinary. In fact, in, in certain religions, Hinduism, Yanuism, Buddhism, and Sikhism, you have the opposite. You, have, you really have the uh, man becoming God, to bring out the divine in the human being. I've never been on that path. I've never seen anything like that within me. The good that we have, the power that we have, comes from, in my experience, comes from above. That's where it comes from. Talking about Jesus, it must have been hard for the people as they saw him to believe in him. You know, he had a Galilean accent. They had an accent, no doubt about it. Um, what was visible was his humanity. That's all you could see. It was his humanity. That's all you could see. He said that he had, he had come from heaven. That's a claim, an, an incredible claim to have come from heaven. That is what he claimed. That he had eternally existed, which only could pertain to deity. That he had been sent into the world by the Father. What a claim. He claimed to be the savior of the world. Uh, he claimed to be the only way to God. Uh, he, he claimed to have the right to be honored and to be worshipped. He accepted worship. He claimed equality with the eternal God, which so upset him, and they wanted to kill him for it. He claimed to the power to give life. And let's face it, there was the daughter of Jairus. I know there were only a few witnesses. There was the son of the, the widow of Nain that was more in public. And then you have that ultimate, that ultimate the resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, he certainly could do that. But he claimed more. He claimed that he could bring you back to eternal life. You go to the Gospel of John chapter 6, about four or five times. And I'll raise him or raise her up on the last day no matter how long how much you were decayed it is quite remarkable the claims that he had were extraordinary and it wasn't easy it wasn't straightforward to believe in him as you saw him mind you if you would know if you would know the scriptures that would make a tremendous difference he fulfilled every prediction and promise. He claimed that he would uh, rise from the grave on the third day. You know, um, Jesus rose from the dead. And the only explanation for an buoyant Christian church in the early part there after he had returned to heaven, and particularly after the outpouring of Pentecost, is due to the fact that Jesus came back to life. Nobody has ever disproven, nobody has ever disproven the resurrection of Christ. In fact, the evidence is all there. Is all there. 
He claimed to be the one of whom the Old Testament was, was speaking and predicting, of course. He claimed to be without sin, and he could say Satan had nothing on him, and he didn't. He claimed to have the authority in heaven and on earth. He said that just before he left. He claimed the authority to forgive sins, which is the prerogative of God. He claimed to be the greater than, than the temple, greater than Jonah. In fact, he claimed to be greater than Solomon, greater than Jacob, and in fact, even even greater than Abram. In fact, he claimed existence before Abram, who existed some 18 centuries before. He, he claimed to exist, of course, before Abram was born. He claimed to be the anointed one. Messiah, Masach, the verb. That is where we get the word Messiah come from, the counterpart of Christus in the Greek. He claimed to be the anointed one, claimed to be the son of God. What a claim. This from a man who physically, by appearance, by appearance, uh, in, you know, uh, when, when you look at him, indistinguishable from any other Galilean man. I mean, Galilean of all people. In fact, you know, he came from, he came from Nazareth. What good could come from Nazareth? He did. He did. The Jewish leaders judged him to, as a blasphemer, therefore he must be under the, overwhelming in, under the overwhelming influence of Satan. He does what he does by the power of Satan, they told the people. They couldn't deny the tremendous miracles. You could follow Jesus. You know, there was something about the disciples. The disciples, the disciples, all they had to do is look at him and what he was doing. What he cured, you know, the lame were walking, the blind were seeing, uh, the dumb and the deaf were hearing and, and speaking. It was incredible what he could do. That's besides the resurrections that he performed. The healings were something to behold. You'd have to believe in him. And of course, by what power could he do that? According to the Pharisees and the, the scribes and the priests, it was the power of Satan. Oh, they couldn't be more wrong. He was likely possessed by Satan himself. And then you look at the upper room, even after his resurrection. This is just before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 120 people. I don't know whether more people could be fitting in that room. I'm just saying, was that the subtotal of a three and a half years ministry as the Messiah, as he went around performing the miracles that he performed, teaching what he taught? But then again, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the Christian church exposed Loaded. Within weeks, 20,000 at least. Jesus, the great I am. He will save the people from, his, uh, from their sins. That's what the angel Gabriel said. And he did. He can. He still does. He was the expressed image of the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father, Philip. He earned the right to forgive. And he did freely, freely forgave. And of course, he did earn the right to sanctify. Don't forget that. Jesus earned the right to sanctify us. And that is what he does, still does. He earned the right to intercede. He earned the right to judge. And he certainly, he certainly defended this law because if you love me, you keep my commandments. And he is justified to rule forever. The kingdom that is granted to him and the process is going on in heaven you must be a part of that kingdom because it is going to last forever and the mind cannot comprehend the incredible the incredible blessing that is coming with it we have a future 
that is absolutely amazing. And so Jesus, the great I am, he said this, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, and in your Bible it will say, draw all people to myself, that my people is not there, I will draw all to myself. You see, when Jesus was crucified and he drew all to himself, that was not just an earthly event, that was a cosmic event. The whole of the universe was looking at it. We, we sometimes think too small. The whole of the universe was watching every step of the way. Just as, as they watching you and me, what we do is this incredible, incredible knowledge. He became the bread of life. The sustenance comes from him. He became the light of the world, the true light of the world. He became the door, which is like the mindset. He became the good shepherd. He guides you. He keeps you. He became the resurrection. He became the way, the truth, and the life. And I love this one. He became divine. You know, the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John is very good. Read it. Read it. Please read your Bible. Read that 15th chapter. You want to be grafted into Jesus. You want to be grafted into him. And, and you will have eternal life if you do. No doubt about it. And then there are the things that I just love this. The book of Daniel. Chapter 7. Some almost 2,400 years... He looks at the culmination of the longest time prophecy of 2,300 years. Which is the pre-Advent investigative judgment in the year 550 BC. Have a look at this. He sees what he sees. And I, I just want to draw your attention what the man sees. I just picked a few verses. It says the court is seated. The court was seated. We have a, we have a, a judgment, haven't we? Then he says, then he says, and the books were opened. In the books is the information. It's an investigation. We are right to believe in a pre-advent investigative judgment. It is right there in the book of Daniel, and he sees it. Don't ask me how. He sees it in the year 550 BC. That's fantastic. He sees, he sees, look at this, look at this. It's so good. Behold one like the Son of Man. Who is this? He's coming to the Ancient of Days. Who is this? That is Jesus. Behold the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. That is, an, that is a divine attribute. He comes to the Father. He comes in last. The judge comes in last. All judgment is given to the Son. Amazing. In the year 550 BC, he sees the incarnate Jesus. He sees not only that Jesus came into heaven at the time of the pre-advent investigative judgment, which the book of Daniel teaches is 1844. We are right to accept that. We are spot on to believe that because it is an absolute biblical, biblical reality. He sees him. He has taken his humanity with him into heaven. That's predicted. Jesus took his humanity with him into heaven. Marvelous. Marvelous. He retains it. We will see him like that. 
He retained his humanity. He would be successful in his sacrifice. No point to have a pre-Advent investigative judgment if Jesus would not have been successful in his sacrifice. He was completely, utterly, and totally successful. He paid it all. And then, of course, his ministration in the heavenly sanctuary. You couldn't have a pre-Advent investigative judgment if his mission as a priest our intercessor would not have commenced as he entered that, that heavenly sanctuary. It's a beautiful doctrine. It is an absolutely incredible doctrine. And then to him was given dominion because he has an everlasting kingdom and the glory that he deserved and the kingdom of which we must be a part. So what's in a name? I, I, I look at the promise that, that, that made in the, in the of course, uh, in the book of Isaiah, it's uh, the, the name itself. Everything is in a name. The, the name with us, God, Immanuel, with us, El, the singular of Elohim. With us, God, we were told, the Jews were told, God is going to be amongst you. He is going to be incarnate. He is going to move amongst you. He's going to come from you. Why didn't they accept him? Why didn't they accept him? It's incredible. Pointing the way, he became the way. Pointing to the truth, he became the truth. Pointing to life, he was the life. That is him. So generous of God. The Son of God, C.S. Lewis puts it this way, became man that to enable man, to enable man to become the sons of God, the sons and the daughters of God. You know the historical Jesus. People sometimes say, well, where's the evidence that he ever existed? <clears throat> I don't know why I get those questions sometimes. <clears throat> can I prove an historical Jesus? Yes, I can. Do I believe in an historical Jesus? Yes. And I always ask people, do you believe that Julius Caesar existed? Yep. Do you believe that Cyrus the Great lived? Oh, yeah. Do you believe that Alexander the Great lived? Plato. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, do you believe? Yeah, yeah. But when it comes to Jesus, I still get people who say, how do we know he ever existed? I could quote a number of historici, and not the least, Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian, uh, particularly uh, some of the Roman historici, in fact, themselves, then you can always go to the Talmud. The Talmud the Jewish Talmud has a portion called the Toledad Yeshua. And it is really the, uh, about Jesus and how he was, uh, uh, was arrested and, and condemned and executed and proclaimed to be uh, uh, risen from the dead. You can, you can go to the, what's called the, the, the Babylonian Talmud, adopted in about 500 AD. You can go there and the history is there. Don't ever doubt it is silly to doubt. If you don't want to believe the historical Jesus, you couldn't even believe in Napoleon Bonaparte. You couldn't. The evidence is so overwhelming that there was an historical Jesus. And the evidence of what happened and the fulfillment of all the prophecies, hundreds of them in the Old Testament. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I love this. Uh, that was read. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. The physical death 
as painful as it is, as it can hurt on the separation, if you are in Christ and you have your faith in Jesus Christ, as truly as you are seated here, as truly as I stand before you, he will keep his promises. It will be wonderful to see our loved ones that are in Christ back again. We are going to see them. I can't wait to see my parents again. I never shed a tear as they were buried. I knew I would see him again, and I will by the grace of God. And may that be the consolation that you need for any dearly departed. Curse of the Talmud, this is amazing. You know, why did I begin to believe in the Seventh-day Sabbath? Someone sent me a document listing all the churches admitting that the Seventh-day Sabbath is Saturday. Amazing. Amazing. Also, that there is no authority. I can give you a whole list of Protestant churches that they know there is no authority to transfer the solemnity of the Seventh-day Sabbath to the first day of the week. Does it matter? Well, well let me tell you something. If it didn't matter, God would not have appointed a day. He specifically said what? And the Seventh-day Sabbath was attacked. And it has been for many hundreds of years. It was changed by the Roman Catholic Church who claims credit to have done so. And she's right in doing it because she did. The reformers, many of the reformers realized, absolutely were convicted of the fact that the Seventh-day Sabbath was the fourth commandment. No doubt about it, and still binding. So why don't people keep it? And here is something that the curse of the Talmud, you know, somebody asked me, well, what do the Jews say on, say, Daniel 9, chapter 9? Here is something interesting that you should see. May the curse of heaven fall upon those who calculate the date of the advent of the Messiah, and why? Because they create political and social uh, unrest among the people. And the one verses that you're not allowed to study as a Jew is in Daniel 9, verse 25, verse 26, and verse 27. And I'm going to show you why, so you know. When there is an opposition to a biblical principle, you better believe it is a most important principle. And wherever the attack is most vicious and most intense... That is where the profoundest, deepest truth may be found. That's just the way it is. Have a look at this. Have a look at this. In 539 BC, can I stress, 539 BC, the prophet gives this, and I just take some excerpts of chapter 9. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Two things. Rebuild restore civil rights. You find that in the seventh chapter of the book of Ezra. You've the very year 457 BC a decree by Artaxerxes Longimanus. This is not the platform to go through it in detail. I still think we should do a Daniel seminar. Until Messiah the Prince, 483 years later, as it is expressed by the year day principle, seven weeks and 62 weeks, 69 times seven, I know you got it worked it out, 483 years, brings you to 27 AD, the very time when Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit comes down on him 
uh, in the form of a dove. That is his anointing. Anointing means receiving a portion of the Holy Spirit. And it was so powerful that it empowered him to be the Messiah. And then after the 62 weeks, after 27 AD, the Messiah shall be cut off. In the Hebrew Karat is very violent death. Jesus died a terrible violent death. Not for himself and the people. Now, please pay attention. I know, I know it's tempted sometimes to get sleepy. Not now. <laughs> I can see you. <laughs> and the people of the prince who is to come, have a look at this, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That happened in 70 AD. Who was the general that led the Romans to do this? Because it was the Romans. Titus. His dad started the siege. His dad at the destruction of Jerusalem was the emperor that makes Titus a prince. Get it? Folks, you getting this? Here you have a prediction in the year 539 BC. 539 BC. So a good six centuries before it happens, Romans. They destroyed the temple. When? 70 AD. The prince, Titus. Why the prince? Well, his dad was the emperor. Vespasian was the emperor. The detail is fantastic, right? And here you have a clear-cut indication that this had to be inspired. What Daniel said, that the Messiah would come and go, the Messiah would come and go before the temple would be destroyed. Not only that. He said... The Messiah, the anointing would find place in 27 AD. 27 AD, the date is there. And then after that, the temple, at the time of the prediction in 539 BC, the temple in Jerusalem lied in ruins. Jerusalem was in ruins. So in other words, for it to be destroyed again, it has to be rebuilt again. The prediction is there. That's exactly what happened. They dedicated the second temple in 516 BC. Uh, called the Zerubbabel Temple. It is amazing the details that you get here. How can you not believe the Messiah came and went before the temple to be rebuilt would be destroyed? There is the rock-solid evidence, undeniable, that Jesus is the Messiah. Amen. And there is no point waiting for a Messiah to come. Then he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the weeks, there from the autumn 27 to the spring 31 AD, northern hemisphere, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering because type met anti-type at Calvary. The prediction is precise. And you've got to stand in awe. And you've got to get on your knees and say, thank you God for proving that you are who you say you are. Because he is. Dead Sea Scrolls. 1947 they found them. Copies of copies of copies on papyri and you know, datable uh, parchments. I like the statement of Flavius Josephus. For those who believe that Daniel was an historian and wrote after the fact. He said this, that he, in his uh, Antiquities of the Jews he puts Daniel in the 6th century BC setting. 
Not only does he do that, he made it crystal clear, he made it crystal clear that no contribution has ever been made to the Old Testament since the death of Artaxerxes Longimanus, who died in 424 BC. That means much of Daniel's predictions, really, if he was one of the last to write, uh, if you look at chapter 2, if you look at the, the, the vision of the, the metals of the, the statue, you've seen this, I don't know how many times before. Remarkable, you get gold, you get Babylon, silver, Middle Persia, Greece, bronze, and then you get iron, Imperial Rome. And I'd love to spend time on this. The fact of the matter is that there he gives in about 603, he gives a record of a dream so accurate, setting out the world history for some two and a half thousand years. And here we are, the beneficiary of the prophecies that have never failed, have always been proven to be accurate. It is unbelievable that people don't believe the believable. What I've presented to you is the believable, right? Amen. So it is. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain. I did it myself, by the way, the little animation. It took me a long time. I'm no good with computers. But I'll get by. The great stone that struck the, the image became the great mountain and filled the whole earth. Jesus' kingdom is going to be here. You remember this, this movie called The Da Vinci Code? 2006, it was uh, on a novel of uh, Dan Brown. I'll show him in a minute. I'll show him in a minute. Um, that man is, is going to be in trouble. You know, people say this. If you kneel before God, you can stand before man. Any man. You can. But if you don't kneel before God, So here it is, Dan Brown. This is what he says, made money out of it. And then this is what he says, the Bible is a product of man. Well, God used men to write it, but then he inspired them. He said, it's not of God, he's wrong. He's now dead wrong. He, now in the case, he's never read it, he's never studied it. Have you ever noticed that the people that never read the Bible have the biggest, strongest opinion on the Bible? Every single time, every single time. He says, man created it as a record of tumultuous times. And it has evolved in countless uh, translations, he says. I bet he couldn't mention two. Uh, many editions and, and revisions. And then he says this, history has never had a definitive version of the book. Where has he been all these years? Why say things like that? And how do you get away with it? and then still make money out of a... It's unbelievable, it's unbelievable, unbelievable. A person who ridicules the, tr the truth says more about himself than about the truth. Is that true? Oh yes, you better believe that. Again, C.S. Lewis, I like him. Human history is the long, terrible story, he says, of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. There is no happiness outside God. Don't waste your life trying, because it's not there. We walk by faith, Paul says. We do, not by sight. Good statement, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7. He said this, 
in the letter to the Hebrews, faith is the substance. Substance is a hypostasis in the Greek is a, is a, a document, is a, a document of ownership, if you like. It is the, the title deed. He says, faith is the title deed of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. It is so sure. It is so absolutely sure. But without faith, he adds to it in verse 6 of the 11th chapter, it is impossible to please him. Here it is. We believe in a God that we have never seen. We believe in a Christ we have never seen. We believe, we believe in a Holy Spirit we have never seen. We actually, you could say, we embrace a death and a resurrection that we haven't seen. We, uh, we, we trust in a justification that we have not seen. Uh, it, and yet it's not blind faith. What we believe, we believe by faith. It is faith, absolute faith, based on evidence. Based on evidence. Patriarchs and prophet paid. I need glasses for this. I hate glasses, don't you? <laughs> I thought I'd get away with it without the glasses. Uh, Page 55. In the judgment, man will not be condemned. Oh, please listen to this. Man will not be condemned because they consciously believe a lie, but because they did not believe. And that fits well with 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter. They did not receive the love for the truth. It's not they didn't receive the love, that they didn't receive the truth. They did not receive the love for the truth. That's the killer. Because they neglected the opportunity of learning what is truth. The greatest neglect is not finding out truth. Yes, you have to read your Bible. Yes, you have to get on your knee. You have to pray earnestly. He'll bring the truth. The Holy Spirit will come to you and he will lead you into all truths if you want it. You don't want it, you're not going to get it. You're not going to live it, it's not going to come your way. These are the facts. And God will see to it. The truth will set you free. Whatever contradicts God's words, he says, we may be sure that it proceeds from Satan. We must set our hearts to know what is truth. I want to close with this little story that we know so well of the, uh, the father with the demon-possessed son. I didn't put everything here. Remember that the, the, the transfiguration on the mount? You know that? You remember that? Somewhere in Upper Galilee. Caesarea Philippi, not too far from Mount Hermon. Now, Jesus is there with three of his disciples. James, John, and uh, Peter. And so this wonderful phenomenon uh, happens there. There is a glorification of Jesus and two glorious beings accompany him there for the moment and they're speaking to him. Who are they? There's Elijah and there is Moses. Moses who was resurrected. You find it in the book of Jude just before the, the book of uh, Revelation in, in verse 9. And there's Elijah in 2 Kings, uh, the second chapter. You find the story of Elijah who never saw death. He, wa he wanted to die. He, he didn't. God didn't let him die. Marvelous what a thing that must have been. Down in the valley there is a problem. Down in the valley there is a desperate father. 
because of the condition of his son. And if you look at the contrast up the mountain, there is a father who is pleased in his son. In him I am well pleased. Down in the valley is a father who is suffering the agony of watching his son going through the most terrible suffering. And he wants it to stop. He just wants it to stop. And so he's come to the He's come to the disciples. And the interesting thing is that the disciples tried to expel the demon. Remember the story? But they couldn't. Now Jesus did say that, that this particular type comes out only with fasting and prayer. But there is another reason why the disciples couldn't do it. She says in, 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 in Desire of Ages, there was a resentment of the nine that they were not part of the three that went up the mountain with Jesus. And Jesus had told them when they came down the mountain, don't tell anybody anything. When you have resentment in your heart, what's it? He can't use you. He cannot and he will not use you. And the demons took no notice of what they had to say. You go to chapter 6, they were expelling demons because Jesus had sent them out two by two. He had empowered them. Here is an object lesson. Just because Jesus empowers you to do something, don't assume the next time you have the same power still indigenous in you. You have to get on your knees again and you have to ask for it again. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. That is what the Bible teaches. But the Bible teaches. And then, then you get this. I must hurry. Jesus says, oh, faithless generation. That means all of them. There are the scribes having a wonderful time ridiculing the disciples. No doubt about it. And then Jesus asked the man, he said, how long has this happened to him? That Jesus asked the question is indicative of the fact. Either he wants everybody to hear it or he doesn't know it himself. The spirit did not always reveal everything to him. The father says from childhood, how often he is thrown in both in the fire and the water. He a full-time job to save the life of that boy, his boy. And then, then he says in verse 23, I want you to see this. He says to Jesus, he's kneeling before him. He's, he's desperate. Nowhere else to go. He says to Jesus, he says to Jesus, uh, if there's anything you can do, if there's anything you can do, have compassion on us and help us. That is not exactly a statement of faith, isn't it? But make no mistake, you could be sitting here being short on faith. That doesn't mean that you don't get a look in. Have a look at what this father does. If you can do anything, have compassion on us. And then Jesus gives you the lesson to him and to you and me here this morning. If you can believe, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. If you can believe. Here is the question. Can you believe? And you know what the father said. You know what the father said. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, notice again, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out, you know this, the best prayer in the whole of the Bible, through his tears, Lord, I believe, help thou. He'll hear you. 
You pray that prayer, he will hear you. He will answer you. He will provide you. The father turned to the only one he could go. He said the only prayer he could pray, help me with my unbelief. That's the way. And then Jesus rebukes that demon and he, obviously the demon obeys. And then Jesus has a message for that demon. Don't come back. Don't possess him again. I love that. I just love that. Whatever your problem, you don't want it to come back, you go to Jesus because he can tell him to go and, yeah. This is important. And so, by grace you have been saved through faith. That faith is not of yourself. That faith the Father had to plead for. Jesus gave it to him instantly as his son was healed. That not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works that we should boast. The grace here is the faith that he gives you by which you can live. That is the grace. It is unmerited favor. The grace that he gives you, the grace that he, that he makes you a recipient of, that grace is the faith that comes straight from Jesus. God's end time people keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. They go together. The faith of Jesus that is imparted to us gives us the capacity to keep his commandments. It's that simple. For we, are, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before and that we should walk in him. And here is the conclusion. Believe the unbelievable. Be the impossible that you can never do and be in your own way. Do the impossible that you could never do by yourself. Live the impossible like you could never live before. And you can do it also, Jesus Christ, your Savior. That's the message this morning. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to you and thank you for the gift of Jesus who is all in all everything to us. And Lord, as we are seated here as a people and you know our stories, you know our shortcomings, you know our sinfulness, you know our sins, but we come to you, where else shall we go? Lord, give us that power, give us that faith. And we believe that you can do this. You, we, we, can, we believe that you will give it. Give us that power that we so desire that we can honor you day by day, moment by moment. Bless each and every one here in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. God bless you. This message was made available by the Watara Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit waitarachurch.org.au.
I trust the ever-living one that he for me will Fountainview Academy sang My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. Coming up next from the album A New Song Collective, Volume 1, this is Faith. Faith is believing that God is and what He says That He spoke the worlds from nothing by His breath It's believing He rewards you if you seek Him with all you are That he holds the book of life, the keys to death You can learn of God through the 
through the simple faith of man How Noah made an ark at God's command You've heard of Daniel and the lion's den And we know all about the faith of Abraham There's a choir of those who've gone before
We hope you enjoy the short presentation of how God led His people after the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. Stephen Haskell was born in the year 1833 in Oakham, Massachusetts, and would go on to have a huge impact on the world church. He was converted at the age of 15, and a few years later, he would marry his first wife, Mary. At the age of 19, he heard the message of Jesus' soon return and started to tell everyone about this. One day, while he was talking to a friend, he was encouraged that he should start preaching himself. At the time, he was a professional soap maker, but he started to preach and was known as being able to comprise sound, logical, and powerful sermons. In 1853, he attended a camp meeting in Winstead, Connecticut, after which he decided to travel through Canada. On his way, he stopped in Springfield, Massachusetts, where he met William Saxby, a tinsmith who introduced him to the Sabbath. Despite being initially opposed to it, he listened to him, and after studying it out, he realized that it was biblical and committed to keeping it. A visit later on with Joseph Bates would further solidify this decision that he had made. By now he was living here in South Lancaster and was active in ministering to the believers in the area, keeping accurate records of the Sabbath schools, churches and members. In 1868, he handed a copy of this report to James White. He showed J.H. Wagner and J.N. Andrews and so impressed were they by his abilities that they ordained him as a minister, formed a New England conference and appointed him as the first president. He was 37 years old at the time. Another initiative that he started during his time here in South Lancaster was the Vigilant Missionary Society. They started by writing letters of encouragement, lending books and papers, and praying for people. Over time, this small society would grow and flourish until it became the ABC, or Adventist Book Center, as we know it today. S.N. Haskell was a decisive and organized leader and served as the president here in New England whilst also being president in California and president of the main conference for a time as well. While he was president here in New England, he saw the forming of the South Lancaster Academy, which would go on to become the Atlantic Union College. Standing behind me is Founders Hall, built in 1884, the oldest original Adventist school building. Stephen Haskell would be instrumental in the start of the work in Australia and New Zealand, spending 13 months there. Whilst he was away traveling, his wife Mary would stay at home. She was a committed Christian and bore her physical pain with patience. Later on, she and Stephen would move here to California where she is buried. Writing in Ellen White, Stephen said, I loved her and she loved me, in capital letters, as if to emphasize the point. The Lord would provide another wife for Stephen, Hetty Hurd. 
She was a pioneering type of woman whom he had met several times and was an active missionary having spent time in England, Africa and California. They would get married in Australia in 1897 and would go on to start a training school in New York City before later moving to California where they were instrumental in the start of the health work here. Later on they would move to Nashville, Tennessee and it was whilst there that they heard the sad news that Ellen White had passed away. Essen Haskell had previously been asked to share the message at her funeral and delivered a message of hope and triumph. As he reached his final years, he once commented to his wife that he was frustrated that he couldn't do more in life. She told him that whereas he used to travel and preach, now his printed sermons went to places that he never could. He lies buried here in California next to his first wife, Mary, because he told the brethren that when he died, to bury him next to whichever wife was closest. Years earlier at his ordination, James White had told him, always look to God rather than man for direction in your work. May we do the same, to look to God rather than our fellow man for our directions in God's work. To view more episodes in the series, visit lineagejourney.com. Let's listen to William Ackland as he shares a psalm from his paraphrase of the Bible called The Gift. Psalm 70 is David praying for personal peace. Be swift, O God, to rescue me. Please hurry to help me, O Lord. Let those be brought down and be dumbfounded who seek to end my life. Let them retrace their steps and be confused who want to harm me. Let them slink away in their humiliation, those people who have heaped scorn upon me. Reward all those who seek you, O Lord, with a glorious vision of you. And may those who rejoice in your salvation say, May God be glorified. As for me, I am a poor and needy man. So hurry to help me, O God, for you are the only one who can help and deliver me. So please, O Lord, do not wait any longer. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.